Isn't he a good God? Amen. Wonderful, wonderful master. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. And we read a couple of verses. The Apostle Paul had spent a lot of time with the Corinthians. As one minister put it, they was hung up on gifts. This one minister called them charismaniacs. And the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time correcting them on the usage of gifts. And also, uh, reading today, I found out the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time on getting them to recognize that they have a personal enemy. And he is continuing always to turn them aside from Christ. And he says in the 10th verse of the second chapter, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. And if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sake forgave I it in the person of Jesus, a person of Christ. He's talking about forgiveness. He was quite adamant on the fact that forgiveness ought to come from Christian people and Christian hearts. And he said the reason for that is, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Will you stand with me? Father, we're thankful tonight for your grace and your mercy and your love, your compassion and your everlasting friendship that we received when we came to you and accepted the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the warning signs that you've given us. We thank you for the advice that's in the scriptures. And we thank you, Father, for the provisions that you have given us and we receive from your hand and more than anything else we thank you father for the knowledge that it can compass round about us to be able to cause us to live victorious and overcoming lives we thank you for that in jesus name and we'll give you the praise amen there's been a lot said tonight about demon forces and inhabiting individual lives and it's all true it's been going on for a long time. It seems like there's periods of time where there's demon activity that uh, we find in the church and then it more or less dies down a little bit or perhaps it's still there and nobody bothers to stir them up. It takes the Word of God to stir demon forces up. It takes good holy people to uh, cause them to recognize who Jesus really is. And we've been talking about Satan, but not in that capacity. We're talking about the ability of Satan to enter into a Christian's thought life and cause him to think that he is doing the will of God when sometimes it's vastly different from that. And Paul said to the Corinthians, Because I've taught you, you're not ignorant of the devices of Satan. And many Christian individuals are just not understanding the devices of Satan and how many times he simply rules our day for us. And we seem not to realize it. And now, don't get me wrong, if we recognize where Satan is at in our life, we have Jesus Christ to rebuke him with. There's no doubt about that. He is stronger than the devil. I've heard people say, I'm not afraid of the devil, and I'm not afraid of him either, but I have the utmost respect for him. Because in searching out some of the ways that he deals in our lives, and how he has advantages that we don't know anything about, I respect him as being greater than I am. Not greater than that which indwells me, but greater than I am. So I want to kind of review just a little bit on some of the advantage of Satan. And if we recognize the tremendous advantages of our adversary, then we're going to see how, he, how he's able to exploit his power over our own thought life. Everything comes from within us, whether it's thinking on our part, thinking uh, uh, of the advantage of Satan places thoughts in our mind, or whether it's God's way of doing it. And he has instant and immediate access to each person's mind. This is alien for the most part to a lot of people. They think Satan can't see, don't know what's going on. But according to the scripture, he does. He has a complete panorama of overall, group, uh, overall view 
of our thoughts and our imaginations, including our motives, including our intentions, our secret ambitions, and our desires. You see, he's familiar with all our weaknesses and our strengths. Now, if you're strong in a point, he'll not bother you there. And he actually knows where we're strong at. Many people are strong in some things, others in others, and Satan doesn't bother you on your strong points. It's your weak points that he begins to, well, particularly our defenselessness and the times when there's vulnerable areas in our life. And we permit that sometimes, either by carelessness or just complete ignorance of what's going on, and he can plant ideas in our mind, or he can remove ideas from our mind. In other words, if it's a good idea, sometimes because we are not where we ought to be, he can remove that idea and plant his own idea. And when we see all of this with an enemy that is actually bound with his own life to destroy everything that we are, all of God's people, we ought to respect an enemy like that. He knows us better than we know ourselves. You see, he can make a suggestion. And here's some of the things that you need to watch out for, that I need to watch out for. If you make a suggestion to a man that matches his passions, something that he wants to do that appeals to his weakness, and he, if Satan can do that at the right time, why then you'll buy his plan every time. Not that we have to, it's simply because of our passions and our uh, values, so to speak, sometimes we want to. And that's where Satan's strength lies, his knowledge of human frailty. That gives him the ability to make more, some of the most appetizing suggestions when sometimes they are altogether wrong and completely opposite to the Word of God. You ever wonder sometimes many of God's suggestions has to do with the future. God's promises, for the most part, or a lot of the parts, have to do with the future, and most of his promises are unseen. He just expects us to take the word of God and believe those promises are there. And all of God's promises involve some denial or crucifixion or persecution of the flesh. So it's easy sometimes to see why we would listen to a suggestion that comes, or an idea that comes from within us, when it requires no self-denial, and it requires no crucifixion of our flesh. And when you get down to it, how many of us are interested in something that would crush our ego and put us down, or deny us the passions that we want, or overrule the instincts of the body? We read that scripture, says, As a man thinketh in his heart or in his mind, so is he. And Satan can cleverly plant ideas sometimes in lives where sometimes Christians act like the devil and do things that only devilish individuals would do. We need to understand his subtility. Now, from the Greek word subtility means cunning, means all these things, means wily, means he's crafty, means he's skillful, means he's clever, means he's ingenious, insidious in his operations, deceitful and treacherous. All of those describe your enemy, your arch enemy. And as I've said, every, all of us have guardian angels, and also we have messengers of Satan to buffet us. In other words, the Apostle Paul had that, and that was to keep him humble. Now, ideas arise. All comes from within, and we have to understand that. Ideas arise within our own mind. Sometimes they coincide with our passions, what we want. And that's what makes these ideas so tempting. Ask yourself, would I be inclined to resist a notion that meets a secret longing in my soul? And this is a valid question. Now, all of us make fleeces, all right? Every one of us have. We probably will continue to do so. I've made many of them, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to understand that we have another spirit or another nature involved when we make a fleece. In other words, we don't know what direction to go. And so we make a fleece with God and say, God, if this happens, 
or if this doesn't happen, why then I will know it's your will. But a lot of times we end up doing what we want to do. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And then we're taking that as God's answer, that God gave us that answer. And it took me a long time to understand this because I made as pastor fleeces to God as the direction to go. Because a lot of times in pastoring, you really don't know sometimes which direction to go or what to do. And I made many of them. And I was positive that that was God. And then come to find out things didn't fall in place like they should. It robbed me of prayer time. A lot of times robbed me of other things that I should have done for God and places I should have been for God instead of being for my own uh, enjoyment and so on until I found out there was another nature and another spirit involved in my decisions. And a lot of times because of what I wanted to do. Always reminded me the tale that was told about the old man that come to a T-road and he didn't know which direction to go. And so he made him a stick and to put a point on one end of it. And he said, I'm going to throw this stick up. And whichever way that point points, that's the way I'll go. And he threw that stick up and it come down and it pointed to the left. He picked it up, throwed it up again. It came down, it pointed to the left. Picked it up again, throwed it down, and it pointed to the left. His friend with him said, how come you don't go to the left? Because you said that's what she's going to do. And he said, simply that's not the way I want to go. And a lot of times in our fleecing sometimes, when God says, this is what I want, it's costing us something. You see what I'm talking about? Any time that something doesn't cost us something, then it is wrong. You can bet on that. It is wrong if it's not costing us anything. And suggestions by Satan is divine to appeal to our instincts, to satisfy a longing in our heart, and yet they cater many times to a fallen nature. Now, does that make us fiends? Does that unchristianize us? I don't think so, but it does expose our carnality and our failures to understand. You see, we have been so used to saying, He that is in me is greater than he is in the world. And I heard that, and that is so. That definitely is so, but you have to learn how to use that which is within you, or it's no value to you at all. It's like an electric light. that If you don't turn it on, it lights up nothing. And unless we use the power of God in our life to help us make decisions and to know that, we'll get into that a little further. Now, just, just for the sake of something, do gossiping Christians really mean to destroy others in Christ or others in the church? And of course they don't. It don't occur to them usually that that evil desire within them is being satisfied or placed there by a satanic scheme of some type to get them to talk and so on. The yearning to satisfy need is so strong that it binds them to hurt and destruction that follows. Who really suspects that words issuing from our mouth are inspired by Satan? You see, we're too much of a Christian for that. We have too much God in us for that. We say that. But yet many times that is not so. I want to point yeah. you to something. Yeah. Two scriptures, one of them is Matthew sixteen twenty-three, And Jesus was talking to Peter about uh, his death. And Peter just simply rebukes him. And, and uh, then Jesus uh, looked through Peter and saw the devil uh, saying something. And he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter thought he was doing the right thing, but yet he was speaking and allowing Satan to speak through him. And also in Romans 6.16 said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield your servants to obey, his servant ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In other words, the Apostle Paul was telling the Romans that there are times when you are obeying the wrong spirit. You're walking after the wrong, walking the wrong avenue, and many times Christians don't even know that. They don't understand that. I, say, I would say this, with all the love of God in my life, if Christians understood that many times they are oriented by 
something of the devil than if they really understood that and could be overcomers in their life, this church would not hold Christian people that's in this town, even tonight on Wednesday night. And many of our actions are motivated by that. Now, gossip, I think, is probably the most heinous, vicious crime among Christians. And yet you know that doesn't come from God. And yet multitudes of Christians do it. And not only do they do it, but they enjoy doing it. Because it does something for them. It puts somebody else down. And while it's putting somebody else down, it's lifting us up. And when we see that operating in our life, we have to understand that this is not God. This comes from the enemy. And it comes from the same place inside of us. Ideas come from inside of us. And it comes from the same place inside of us other than it, it, it is Satan or in it. And of all the unholiness I think there is in God's people, and you're going to have to admit if we're not careful, we'll be caught up in that. We'll be passing on something when we don't even know what we're talking about and when it would be better off to leave it lie. And do nothing about it, say nothing about it until positive proof comes forth and so on. But instead we gossip that and Satan covers it up and says, well, I just maybe thought maybe you ought to know, you know, just that you might pray for these individuals and help them. And that sounds like a good excuse, but it's not good enough. Okay. Did I hit something then? I believe I must have because I felt like it trying to come back at me, but you did good. You just reached out and grabbed it, and that's fine because we're never going to get over these things until we recognize that Satan is working in our lives, not everybody else's life, but he's working in our life. But it's probably the most satanic thing that there is, is gossip. And it is so prevalent among God's people. It's prevalent in the world, and you wouldn't expect that in the world. But God doesn't expect that out of his people. And yet, that idea comes from the enemy. And then there's judgmentalism. That's probably about as close to gossip as anything I know. And it's easy to judge over various ideas and opinions and, and so on. And Satan knows how to twist probably the smallest difference into a declaration of war. He's a fantastic enemy. And he's a whole lot smarter than we are, regardless how we... He, we don't, he don't care what we call him. You can call him whatever you want to call him. You can call him a toothless lion, and you can uh, say that he is he's rendered palace and all that, and he really don't care, because as long as you're doing that and saying that, he has an avenue there that he can work in you. Okay? And understand this. Can you see... And listen to this now, what an unforgiving spirit would offer Satan. Can you imagine somebody holding something in there, not forgiving individuals, and the power that the devil could exercise over a Christian like this would be enormous. And the way he uses the tongue of unforgiving Christians is heinous, and it's unbelievable. And yet, churches are rent by that. Lives are destroyed by that. Divisions are everywhere because of that. And you know that is not God-wise. You have to understand that because we are Christians, is no sign we are overcomers. And Christ wants overcomers in us. And the more we recognize where the devil moves and motivates our life, the more overcoming power we're going to have. If he continues to work, we disregard him we pay no attention to him. We think we're above all of that because we've received the Holy Ghost and he has the best avenue in the world to continue to work in your life. I think it was said here tonight, the only way that we are a match for Satan is to have God in our mind and God in our life at all times. When we have that, we are victorious Christians. But I don't think there's any perfect Christians yet. I don't think, and I've been, this, I've been in this probably longer than anybody here, and I still have avenues that Satan has access to my thinking. Once I find out what it is, I can combat it. But unless I am prayerful 
unless I'm considering that I am vulnerable to some things because we do have weaknesses and he works on those weaknesses. What would bother me, Satan would bother me with, he doesn't bother you at all, but he does know a real weakness in every individual's life, area areas. Let's make a summary of this. The one person who would have victory in the Christian walk has to do something about Satan. How many of you can agree with me? Lift your hand. We have to do something about Satan. If he is allowed to operate unnoticed, his suggestions are powerful enough to control a life of a Christian almost at any given time. Now this might come as a surprise to you, but victory through Christ is not automatic. Now, the indwelling presence of God does not get rid of of the presence of the enemy. We are still, once we receive the Holy Ghost, we still have fleshly nature. The Holy Ghost was given us divine nature to war against that fleshly nature that the war is up here. This is a battleground. Who uses your mind? Who uses it first thing in the morning? Who uses it during the day? Who uses it at night? That's a battleground. That's where the fight is. Whether the white dog gets all the meat or the black dog. In other words, whether fleshly nature controls or whether divine nature of God controls. Now, there is a response question to that. Is not Satan a defeated enemy? And I've heard that said. And yes, he was defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross. But that defeat has nothing to do with us until we begin to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Unless we take action against the devil, he is not defeated as far as we're concerned. Christ defeated him. Christ gave us the power to defeat him. But you can't defeat an enemy if you don't know you're fighting him, can you? So you have to know in his slick ways sometimes, you see, the Bible says he comes as an angel of light. And also he sounds so much like God sometimes that it takes somebody on their knees all the time to distinguish the difference between what the devil is telling you to do and what God is telling you to do. I found one remedy that works every time. If something tells us that we have to sacrifice, that's God. If something tells us there's no sacrifice to be made. You just do whatever fancies and pleases you. If it pleases the flesh, you do it. That is Satan. You can bank on that remedy and that formula. So until we resist Satan and recognize that Jesus died for us, that so we might have the power to do it, we have to use it. And we have to take action. He is not defeated as far as we're concerned if we don't begin to fight him. He is just the opposite. We don't recognize who he is, where he comes from, then he's a mighty adversary, and sometimes he triumphs over us far too often. It's when we move to resist him in the name of Jesus Christ that he flees, and it's not until then. And I'm going to say it again, unless we recognize this is a cleverly designed plan of Satan that introduces his suggestions. He can't do anything other than suggest. But he's a mighty, powerful foe and very slick in his suggestions. Do Christians, and this is a question that I've been asked over and over again, do Christians suspect that many ideas traveling through their minds are inspired by Satan? And I'd have to say very few Christians understand that. The power of Satan is almost unknown today. We dismiss uh, his workings as being human. How many of us have used that excuse? Well, after all, I am just human. That's not an excuse at all. Or it's just my nature. Well, you're right. It's the old regenerated, unregenerated nature of carnality. And yet a little reasoning, if we could learn how to reason, shows our minds have to be his prime target. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's a truth that makes Satan desperate to control our minds. So obviously, the thought life is a real spiritual battleground for the enemy. And I'm going to say it again. God wants overcoming Christians. Amen. If we ever expect, saints, ever expect to fill this building, then we have to be overcoming Christians. Amen. We have to know 
how to use the name of Jesus Christ to dispel the enemy and the suggestions he makes to us before we can ever dispel him from anybody else's life. And that might be the reason why the pews are empty, might be the reason why that we're not gaining anything because God is waiting. Could I be so bold as to say this? God is waiting for us to grow up. He's tired of us playing around with kid things. He's tired of a pastor having to change diapers and feed you with bottle things. And he's tired of you succumbing to the enemy on many, any little old suggestion in his life. And he's tired of you being waylaid by the powers of the enemy. You ever notice how we feel good sometimes until we get ready to come to church? Now all of us are like that. Come on now. All of us are like that. Now guess who is talking to us? Come on, saints. Guess who is using our mind? Guess who is getting us so wrapped up sometimes in things? Guess who's doing that? It's not God. Because when God tells us to forsake not the assembling ourselves together through the Apostle Paul, as the manner of some is, and even more so, as you see a day approaching, he is not just filling a letter in the Bible. He is telling us something that he demands out of us and expects out of us, and Satan knows that. You see, this is a filling station. This is where you come to learn right from wrong and good from evil and get your tank filled up so you can go out there and do something in this world that the devil don't want you to do. An overcoming Christian life. Satan is an unholy spirit. He has access. The Holy Spirit is God and both are in touch with a subconscious level of our mind. Either one is able to deposit in our subconscious and send it into our thought life as an idea. And since ideas come from within us, many times we naturally assume that's a good idea. That has to be from God because after all, I'm a Christian, I'm spirit-filled, and it comes from here, it has to be God. You're kind of like that preacher. You think what you think is what God thinks. And that's not always so at all. Many times, many times it's not what we think is not what God thinks. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways is higher than ours. So Christians need some discipline of examining their thought life and watching for Satan's influence in our life. We need some discipline in that. And that's why the Word of God says, you see, he writes what he means, and he means what he causes to be written, bringing every thought unto captivity unto the obedience of Christ. Don't let anything go beyond here until you have brought it captive by the power of Almighty God. Often, often we allow these things to come forth and happen without even asking God and seeking God. It's not impossible. In fact, it's the only real way to have victory in Christ. But such a thing never happened unless God's people are serious about their thought life and serious about the idea that Satan's power to control them by suggestions. You see, Satan is not allowed to violate our will. God doesn't, and Satan is not allowed to. He is limited to suggestions. But unfortunately, he's a master of suggestions. Turn on your television sometimes and these people are schooled in suggestions. They'll make you think the car they're advertising is the best one in the world and that you need it. And go to a car lot sometimes with a super salesman and if you're not careful he'll have you buying an automobile and you don't even want it. And uh, all of this eating stuff you know that's not good for you and yet they make it sound so good. Look at those big bacon cheeseburgers that's on there and it's the worst thing in the world for your health and it'll make you think you can't live without it. Power of suggestion. And all of these, and they're schooled in areas like that, but they are nothing compared to the master of deception. And that master of deception is Satan. He's, an, he's a master of it. His knowledge of Human weaknesses allows him to design suggestions like nobody else. You see, he only suggested to Eve. He didn't force her to do anything. He just said, I want you to look at that and look how beautiful it is. And Eve got her mind off of everything else that God had supplied for her. 
She had everything that she needed. She didn't need whatever that was, whether an apple or grape or whatever it was. Actually, it's just transgression against God's law. God said, that's mine, I don't want you to have it. And he didn't force her to eat it. He just suggested that if you eat it, you'll be like God. Look at that passion. Ooh, I'm going to be like God. And so, naturally, she ate it because he was a master of deception. Now, we laugh at Eve. But many times Satan comes, points out to us and says, you would be so much better off if you just had this, or if you just had that, or if you just had something else. You see, the point of the study of this, all of these, this is the fourth week, I think, of it, was learning to recognize Satan's work in our life and then resist him. We have shown you, I think, over and over how cleverly he approaches us with his suggestions most of us would never suspect that the devil has anything to do with what fills our minds sometimes all day. He has us walking contrary to him, filling our minds with things that our minds don't need to think about, sometimes uh, walking in avenues and places we don't need to go, and he has us thinking this has to be done, that has to be done, and sometimes he has us running so crazy that we don't want to come to church, don't feel like coming to church, and we think that the devil doesn't have anything to do with this? Come on, saints, let's get real. Amen. God wants us in the house of God. Yes, he does. Amen. Whether you want to believe it or not, he wants us here. And so whatever is hindering us is not from God. I did feel that come back, but I'm not taking it back because it's a reality. And we need to understand that. The infilling of the Holy Ghost, number one priority, filled. With the Holy Ghost, but that's not enough. You notice in the book of Acts, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and came out of the upper room and then they were refilled with the Holy Ghost and refilled with the Holy Ghost and refilled with the Holy Ghost. In other words, one baptism may be enough, but many feelings. In other words, don't let your tank get dry, all right? Because if you let it get dry, we cannot discern what's coming from within us whether that's Satan's work or whether that's God or maybe just their own imagination. The need for refilling of the Holy Ghost. In a congregation where I pastored, I've said this often, I think, there was a young boy, and this young boy knew all the statistics of baseball players. And there's nothing wrong with that. He knew all the teams involved in the major leagues, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with sports as long as it don't interfere with God's work. Amen? There's nothing wrong in taking a sip of whiskey unless you continue on and drink it until you get drunk. There's nothing wrong with a lot of things. It's the overindulgence of these things. And there's nothing wrong with things like this. But this, the point I'm trying to get at, this, this, this boy ate and slept baseball. It possessed his life. It was his life. I thought as he's doing that, he didn't know anything else about it. He'd been in Sunday school and all of that, but his parents wasn't any help to him. They pushed it and so on. And if you're not careful, you will overindulge in sports and you'll lose your kids. Amen, Brother Roy. You'll lose them. Take my word for it. I've saw it time and time again. But anyway, a spirit-filled individual ought to be like that with God. Have a one-track mind. Okay, somebody talks about something, you just say, for me to live is Christ. Doesn't get you involved that way. Someone begins talking about your, their neighbor, brother, or sister in the church, pastor, teacher. You ought to say, I know nothing, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That'll put a stop to anything else. It won't go any further than that. Christians ought to be reluctant to speak anything else. This one thing I do, the Apostle Paul said it, and that summarizes the whole outlook, nothing ought to matter to us but living for Jesus Christ day in and day out, every hour, every moment of the day, whether we're at home, whether we're in our bed, whether we're at our work, whether we're driving to our work, whatever we're doing, our passions ought to be concerning Jesus Christ. We ought to eat, sleep, and dream Christ. A Christ-like life is about all we ought to want Talk about it, think about it, all he does. And if we'll do that, it will affect our speech. It will affect the neatness of our dress, the way we conduct our business, the way we pay our bills, and carry on the routines of life. If we eat, sleep, and dream Jesus Christ.
The man completely filled with the God Spirit is interested in things only as they relate to Jesus Christ. Amen. That's sold out to God. That doesn't mean you can't do anything else. That just simply means what you're doing, you're doing for Christ. If you're working, do the best job you can because that's what's required of you. All right? If you're doing things, do it the best you can. An individual is sold out to Christ. His life is ordered by the single passion of exalting the name of Jesus Christ. It matters little, shouldn't. And then to this boy, he didn't care what they thought. He'd just spout off the things that he knew about. And it shouldn't matter little to us what other individuals think. We should live soberly for the Master. For the moment we wake until our eyes close to sleep, God ought to be our constant companion and nothing ought to be able to divert us for nothing else matters. Now, are we like that? Question is, why not? Because, as we've been trying to tell you, another spirit competes for your surrender. You don't get past being tempted by fleshly nature. It is going to be there until Jesus comes. You can learn how to overcome it but you can overcome this thing today and tomorrow it will be right back and you will have to overcome it again tomorrow and again tomorrow and again tomorrow. And then when Satan sees that you're not going to work you on that, he'll pick out another area of weakness and you have to overcome that until he knows that there's no chance at all for him to waylay you from there. You see, nothing matters. But we still have a battleground. It's right here. Right there. And most of us, if we'd care to admit it, we are, well, we're just far from where we ought to be in Christ. I find myself again, I've been in this way as long or longer than most of you. And I look back over my life and the times that I've been waylaid by the enemy and times that I still am waylaid by the enemy. I'm learning. I'm more more. Uh, catching on to his ways than ever before a lot of time because of this study. But I still have weaknesses that he preys upon. Times when I find myself falling and I have to rely on Jesus. But we are far from what we think we are a lot of times and more often if we care to admit it, we yield to Satan far too often. Nobody is immune. Satan will let you go to church. He'll let you participate in worship. Then he sets a trap for you during service. Somebody agitates you a little bit. Pastor kind of gets on your toes a little bit. The assistant pastor, interim pastor, kind of waylays you a little bit. And say, I don't believe what he's saying. And you cast that all off and then you go out. And church didn't do you a dime's worth of good. You've been there. But that's just all. You haven't learned anything. You haven't grown up at all. You're left with the same uh, lack of knowledge of how to face the enemy than before. You haven't heeded the words of God that tells you what it takes to be an overcomer in life. You see, he doesn't care what you do in church at all. You can stand up and make the best testimony in the world. And I've heard a lot of good ones tonight. Or you can sing a hair-raising song and a foot-padding song all you want to. He doesn't care what you do in church. It's what you do when you leave church that he's interested in. You can shout. You can enjoy. But he can cancel out as long as he can cancel out your life after you leave the house of God. That's all he's interested in. Oh, sure, he'll try to keep you on your pew and on your seat, but that's not really, that's irrelevant to him as far as that's concerned because he's working already on a trick to destroy anything you might have gotten from the house of God. He knows again your weakness, and he's setting a trap for you from the minute you walk out that door if you're not careful, he will take from you anything you might have learned or conceived or tried to put in your mind. Why, how can he do that? Well, it's easy. He knows how to suggest. He can make you fearful. <laughs> Had a lady that didn't want to come to church a certain time because she was afraid to. Fearful. Well, wonder who puts that in her mind. You know, who, who does that? 
You see, the Bible tells us that God is not the author of fear. And so when we're afraid, who instills that in our spirit and in our life? You see, he doesn't care again what we do in church. That, that's irrelevant to him because he's already, he knows each born-again Christian, and listen to me on this, has just one life to grow and develop in the likeness of Jesus. Once we lay down our head in death, that's the way we're going to meet our Maker. Whatever maturity we have reached, that's the maturity we will face our Maker with. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about rewards that God wants His children to have. And rewards are promised to overcomers. And the only way the church is going to be like it ought to be is to have an overcoming spirit. He knows a Christian job in the kingdom of God depends on His faithfulness here on earth. The value we have outside in this world depends on the value we place in the house of God, the value we place upon our teachers, Sunday schools, or otherwise. Our willingness to learn, our willingness to pray, our willingness to study, our willingness to hear, and our willingness to practice. When I was a young minister, and I was still like that, when I was a young minister, I would go as much and as far as I could to hear some older minister expound their experiences to me and tell me how they overcome and the things that dogged them in their path so I wouldn't have to do that. I learned a lot of things that way and I'm still learning things from ministers and that don't mean it has to all come from old gray-headed individuals like this, but it has to come from experienced individuals whose life has been sold out to God whether they've been a Christian or a minister or a teacher for five years, 15 years, or 50 years, or 150 years, doesn't mean anything if our life is not sold out to God, if we're not desirous of learning some of the things that we need to learn. Satan knows that some of us are going to be rulers in the kingdom of God. And yet we don't even know the kingdom laws. If I was to ask the average Christian, what some of the kingdom laws are, some of the things that's going to be taught by ministers and teachers, most likely the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, but that doesn't do away with uh, those that's called to be saints. If I was to ask the average one, what does Christ expect us to teach in the kingdom? What are some of his health laws that he's going to teach those that are in the kingdom of God in the flesh. And oh yes, there will be in the thousand year reign of peace, there will be individuals in the flesh. They will come right on in. That don't mean they're going to be resurrected. That means that when Jesus comes, they'll go right on in to the thousand year reign of peace. And the Bible tells us that. That if some of them don't come up, well then he'll send fire. He will make them worship him one way or the other. And a lot of people don't even know some of the laws. They have rejected the laws. They say, well, uh, those laws are outdated. Those are Mosaic laws. But those are laws of the kingdom. Israel was a kingdom, was teaching them how to live among a Gentile world and how to keep healthy Amen. and how to do the things they were supposed to do and how to make camp. And how all these things, uh, uh, adventures in war and all of that, it's all in the Bible. And yet the average individual thinks, I'm just going to sail into the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to go up in heaven and I'm going to float around up there without a body. And uh, then others think that all they've got to do is uh, inherit a mansion with so many rooms that take them eons of time to walk through that. That's not it. What it's all about is bringing individuals into the kingdom of God after the thousand-year reign of peace. The enemy moves day and night to block a Christian's growth. He tries to render us useless now and in the future kingdom of God. And he's a master at that. Self is a great mask for Satan. Satan lives, he's mighty, he's present, very hard to detect behind his mask of self. Sister Joni, you said I had a mask on. <laughs> It either has to come from him or God. Now we have to get ready to resist. 
Now again, you can't resist something that you don't know is present. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if you don't know, and you're blind to this, and Satan does blind people's eyes. If you are blind to this, and I'm trying to open our eyes as God opened my eyes to this and caused this thing to be brought forth, I'm trying to open our eyes, it's here tonight, to the suggestions of the enemy and how he really winds himself around about us. We have to recognize, before we can resist, we have to recognize that we are vulnerable in some area or in some areas. We have to understand we don't have all the answers. We have to be on guard. How many of us just live our Christian life foolishly? Wake up in the morning and everything's happy-go-lucky and before the day's over, Satan's already got you ground in the, un, under his heel. We have to look and then eat. And then we have to be on guard and work. And then we have to listen and pray. In other words, the key word is watch. Satan uses every natural desire to enslave us. It's self-ambition that makes a man scheme and plunder. It's self-interest that makes a person exploit somebody else in order to make himself look good. It's self-satisfaction that makes a person gossip. Can I go over that one again? It makes us feel good because we're putting somebody else down and whether we recognize it or not, we're elevating ourselves because it makes us look better than the individual we're putting down and gossiping about. God, deliver the church of the living God from the heinous sin of gossip. Leave it alone. Okay? Leave it go. Satan knows how to get us to live for ourselves by triggering our natural desires. Now in James 4.7, we're not ignorant to the latter portion of that verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How many have heard that quoted just like that? But we missed the first half of it. That says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Now there is no resisting the devil until there is submission to God. You don't have a leg to stand on until you have submitted your life to God. And then you, with the power God has given you in recognizing that, with that you can resist the devil. You see, in order to, uh, there's an order to observe two different directions. You submit to God. You resist the devil. And therefore we have to develop an awareness of Satan. Now we must, in a sense, I think, not try to be too confusing, but we have to be almost two people at the same time. Aware of the presence of Satan through the fallen nature of man. Aware of the presence of Jesus Christ through the divine nature. And each one warring for our minds. Each one actually warring for our soul. If we heed the divine nature, then we're saved. And we're overcomers. But if we heed the fallen nature, why well, then we walk contrary to the will of God. So there has to be a defense system. And I'm going to close in just a minute with this. In a place where crime rate was high, I was living in a place like that at one time, the police and the sheriff gave some safety measures to the residents. This is what he said. Leave a light burning in the home because light reduces home intrusion. Get you a detection unit, a buzzer of some type, attach it to your door, your gate, or your window screens because that alerts you. And then there's an alarm. Get you an alarm, they said. Noise is effective against uh, prowlers. And then get you a weapon. Get you a permit and a weapon and keep it safe and handy. All of this in preparation for detecting and resisting an intruder. Now notice the order. Light, detection, alarm, and weapon. I don't know about you, but at that time, that suggested something to me. If that would keep an intruder away in the natural, why not use those same things to keep the intruder, the enemy, away? That suggests a way of defending our thought life against the spiritual intruder. If we need light, detection, alarm, weapons to ward off an occasional prowler that might enter into our home, how much more... Do we need that defense system against someone who makes it his business to attack our thought life? Now, I'm going to close with that and we'll finish this up week after next because we're going to take the light and how you turn on the light 
we have to go into going to use Satan's M.O., modus operandi, the way he operates, and also light and detection and what it takes to detect. And I'm going to list some of the most prominent things, I think, in individuals' life that we can detect Satan at work with. And I'll list some of them, quite a slew of them, and there's many more than that. And then there's alarm, and when you've caught Satan in the act, what do you do? If you ever catch him in the act, call him by his name. I mean, that will shock the socks off of him because he's not used to Christians calling him out. Amen? And then there's a weapon. Just set a trap for him. That's as far as I'm going to go with that. What we need, what we must have, what the church must understand and recognize is that too many times, I can't say it enough, too many times we feel as if we are following after the ways of God and it's costing us nothing. If you follow God's ways and let Him teach you His paths according to our Sunday school lesson, then it's going to cost you something. And the minute it starts costing you something, take some of the fun out of your life and goes against the grain of something you want to do, then you know you're on the right track. It's God that's dealing with your mind. And if it's free and nothing costs you anything and you throw that stick up and it's that away and you keep throwing it up until God says that's the way you want to go, just go ahead. And you get into trouble and then you want to blame God for it because you said, but God, this is what I thought you said. And God is not going to tell you to do anything that's going to take your mind. Now listen to me. Listen to this old, old, old preacher. He's not going to tell you to do anything that's going to take your mind off of him. So be very, very careful.